My name is Zena Tarraf, uh, and I'm an assistant professor of media studies at the American University of Beirut in Lebanon, where I research and teach courses on war and media, Arab media and society, and visual culture. Today's episode is inspired by the themes that animate Omar Mismar's work. Mismar's oeuvre is, consists of a fascinating assemblage of pieces in which he activates a multitude of artistic practices to grapple with the relationship between art and politics and the implications of the aestheticization of violence, among other issues. From his piece, I will not find this image beautiful, in which he mobilizes the aesthetic of the glitch to disrupt the beauty of sublime violence that characterizes distant images of Israeli bombs in Gaza, to his piece, Exercises in Ruin, where he unsettles the genre of the destroyed city that becomes a pornographic trope to be uncritically aestheticized and consumed. Mismar's work seems guided by the question of how we can ethically bear witness to violence, destruction, and suffering, and how we can defamiliarize the consumptive modes through which we engage violence and the sorts of critical politics these modes elicit. His latest work, Studies in Mosaic Syria, explores the preservation and safeguarding of cultural heritage in the context of the Syrian civil war and engages them with the literal question of art in war-torn contexts. Inspired by these issues that animate Mismar's work, I seek today to reflect on how we can consider these questions in the Lebanese context, where the accumulation of perpetual crisis and violence that have plagued this nation since its inception are felt especially viscerally today, amid a crippling economic crisis and in the aftermath of the world's largest non-nuclear explosion. I tackle these issues from two perspectives. To firstly think through the problem of heritage preservation in sites of conflict, and then to reflect more generally on the question of how we can ethically bear witness to suffering. I turn first to architect Yasmin Daghir, a founding member of the Beirut Heritage Initiative an organization that was formed after the August 4 Beirut blast, to learn more about the efforts of this initiative in rescuing, protecting, and safeguarding endangered heritage buildings from collapse. Next, I engage writer and translator Lina Munzer for insight into how the act of translation can be used as a site to unpack the implications of ethical witnessing. How, in other words, can the processes that translation entail provide a framework for understanding how we bear witness to violence. Allow me to briefly step in. I am Igor Ramirez, and this is Stage. You were listening to Sena Taraf, our guest host, and we will be back with her shortly. As you can tell by now, at Stage, we focus on the topics of our times, the big questions. And we address them through the lens of our artists because we believe that art offers us a completely different perspective. That is exactly what a feature artist, Omar Mesmar, does. He raises questions about cultural heritage and territory, preservation and destruction. Remember to check out his work on www.stage.tba21.org. Without further ado, let us go back to Zeyna. On August 4, 2020, at around 6.07 p.m., 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate that had been stored at Beirut's port exploded, tearing through the city and instantly transforming it into an apocalyptic scene 
replete with bloodied bodies, endless streaks of shattered glass, and mounds of dusty rubble. The explosion, which was the result of decades of corruption, negligence, and mismanagement by an entrenched ruling class, left an unimaginable amount of destruction in its wake, with hundreds dead, thousands wounded, and around 300,000 people displaced. The city, which already bore the mark of an accumulation of violent histories, was instantly unrecognizable and has since become a site of endless construction sounds, as efforts to repair the damages are well underway. Among the countless buildings that were damaged by the blast are about 1,000 historical buildings that are at risk of being destroyed. In light of this threat, the Beirut Heritage Initiative was formed to restore those buildings damaged by the blast. Today, we are speaking with Yasmin Dagher, one of this initiative's founding members, to learn more about this work and its significance in today's crisis-laden context. Hello, Yasmin. Thank you for joining us today. Can you please tell us about yourself and more about how this initiative came about and who exactly is involved in the Beirut Heritage Initiative? Hi, Zena. Thank you for having me on this podcast. I'm an architect that graduated approximately a year ago from my master's from ALBA, Académie Libanaise de Beaux-Arts in Beirut. And I had a final year project that was revolving around heritage preservation and city development by studying the heritage law that was drafted in 2009. My heritage, my interest in heritage was born very early on, and it is a very big part of me because I grew up in a heritage home that was built by my family more than 200 years ago. And I was one of the few people that experienced this heritage as I was growing up. Unfortunately, our heritage was severely damaged by the August 4, 2020 port explosion. And this is how Beirut Heritage Initiative was created. It is formed of architects and experts that has been fighting for heritage preservation for multiple years. It is also an umbrella of collective and collective of many NGOs and organizations that are militant of our heritage. So what kinds of heritage exactly are you interested in protecting and and how do you determine what counts as a heritage building? Um, We are mainly working on two uh, heritage, one that is the modern heritage. So everything that was built between 1930s and 1960s. And the other one is the traditional heritage, which was built prior to 1930s. Most of the heritage buildings that people know of are nicknamed the Lebanese houses. So it's mainly the house with the three three arches, as well as the red pitched roof and the garden. So those houses are not our only heritage. And we usually can recognize those houses by their structure, which are made by sandstone walls. There are some of them that are more vernacular and smaller. They're not all big villas with a garden. As for the modern heritage part, It is mainly an evolution of the traditional heritage, and we can see the details around the openings, such as the window overhangs, or with the evolution of the corbels under the balcony, which goes from four corbels to one main, one large element. And of course, those buildings are much simpler and higher, and they're usually very modest and pure. So who exactly supports the work of the Beirut Heritage Initiative? And I'm curious to hear about the kinds of achievements and successes that this support has allowed you to accomplish. 
on the one hand. And on the other hand, if you could also speak about some of the challenges you are facing, and more particularly, who are the main actors and agencies who oppose the kind of work your initiative undertakes? And how do you maybe deal with some of those challenges? When BHI was launched, there was one main objective, which was to uh, safeguard all of the heritage in Beirut, so the intangible and tangible heritage of Beirut. To be able to do that, we had to carry out urgent and protective measures because most of the buildings were at, at risk of collapse or additional damages because of the rain that was coming a few months later. So we had to also ensure and to preserve the social fabric. And what we did is actually we started working with a team of experts that's named BBHR, Beirut Built Heritage Rescue. It's a crisis cell that was launched by the DGA, the Directory General of Antiquities, right after the blast to protect those heritage homes. So the BBHR is mainly the, everything that's technical. And we were in charge of the field operations, if you want. The first phase, like I mentioned earlier, was to guarantee the, and protect, guarantee the, that no additional damage was going to be done on those buildings. And so we had to cover the roofs and we had to structurally secure those buildings that were heavily affected. To date, we have managed to cover approximately 15 roofs thanks to a grant from Alif, which is the International Alliance for, for the Protection of Heritage in Conflict Areas. We were also able to stabilize a few structures with Alif's help and with other donations as well. And we have reconstructed parts of buildings that collapsed. So, for example, the three arches or interior walls that were severely cracked, etc. Uh, we are currently in our second phase of reconstruction, which consists as a full reconstruction of the buildings. So everything that's interior, exterior, reconstruction of the pitched roof, the wooden windows, etc. And we are, we are turning on a cluster approach, cluster strategy, which is not to renovate just one building, but multiple buildings that, that are next to each other so that we can bring back life to a whole neighborhood and not just a building alone. So to achieve this goal, we have created several partnerships with other NGOs, such as Live Love Beirut, Arc-en-Ciel, Bebouchebek, and now Together in Beirut. So this week, we actually launched a big cluster at the end of Jemaize, beginning of Marem Khayel, with Together in Beirut. For those of you who don't know, Jemaize and Marem Khayel are two neighborhoods in Beirut that were heavily damaged by the blast and that are, that are known for their trendy coffee shops, bars, restaurants, small shops, and boutiques, in addition to their heritage buildings. Each of these historical neighborhoods has been undergoing processes of gentrification since the end of the 15-year civil war that concluded in 1990. And the heritage preservation efforts that Yasmin is discussing work partly to prevent further processes of gentrification. Uh, other people supporting our mission, uh, we have a big donation from Fondation de France that is helping us out uh, with uh, the creation of two manuals, one on the restoration of modern heritage and the other one on the restoration of traditional heritage. And we will be able to do with that grant as well a lot of workshops. And uh, this workshop will help people uh, be a bit more aware of the renovation techniques that should be used in those kind of buildings. We also have received a considerable amount from the Honor Frost Foundation it's an English uh, foundation for maritime archaeology, 
so this amount will be used on the renovation of the blue building in Rue Pasteur in Gemaisel. It's the iconic blue building that had a restaurant on the ground floor. And it was severely affected as well as the buildings next to it. We use, we call this cluster the shoreline cluster. So all of those buildings were severely affected because they are facing the port and nothing else is protecting them. So other than that, we mainly received donations from individuals, which has helped us a lot. And uh, from several collaborations as well, a lot of people have been helping us out with by selling their products and giving a part of the profits to BHI. Unfortunately, even with all of this help, the main challenge we are facing is the lack of funding due to the current economic situation, as well as the sanitary crisis worldwide. And the renovation of a building, of a heritage building, everyone should know that, that the renovation costs a lot, way more than a modern apartment. There is also a lack of craftsmanship and local heritage experts. Everyone with the background in heritage was mobilized right after the blast and has been working up till now. Most of them are working pro bono for the preservation of this heritage that was affected. And finally, as a challenge, we, we are facing a lot of refusal from the owners that usually do not want to work with NGOs because they think that we might not be we not might have the right experience and we might bring cheaper materials to do more, which is not the case in BHI. We always try to bring back the building the way it was before. So usually we try to convince them, but sometimes it's not working. And some some of those owners do not want to renovate their building because they're waiting for it to collapse, unfortunately. These owners who are waiting for their buildings to collapse often do so in hopes of building towers in their place. In the wake of the blast, real estate brokers and developers roamed the devastated city in an attempt to take advantage of this massive destruction. Since the end of the Civil War, I know that there have been several activists and organizations who have raised awareness about and worked on preserving heritage in Beirut. And I know that a lot of these efforts were initially directed against the work of Solider, which is a, a private company owned by late Prime Minister uh, Rafiq Hariri, that was uh, accused of changing the urban fabric of the city after the Civil War uh, by marginalizing huge swaths of the population from the city center, and in fact, demolishing many historical buildings while still marketing itself in nostalgic terms as a restorer of the city's legacy. So I'm wondering, how is the work of BHI connected to or emerging from these previous efforts and and how might it be different? Our work is not that much different from other NGOs and activists that were protecting and raising awareness about heritage. But we need to remind ourselves that uh, the impact of the blast, what it did on our heritage, we never saw that before. We never saw it endangered that much. And it caused invaluable damages to Beirut's heritage. There was more than 300 buildings that were heavily damaged. And when we say heavily damaged, it's the loss of a, of a structural wall or even the roof and interior damages. And we also had 400 other heritage buildings that were moderately damaged. It was mainly windows, doors, uh, interior uh, Baghdadi ceilings, etc., so there's also the case of old tenants, which uh, we try to protect old tenants and the population in those heritage homes and in those neighborhoods. 
which is something that unfortunately Solidaire did not do. Those old tenants have been renting houses since before the civil war and they were in those houses during the civil war and did not move and they renovated their houses after the war's damages. And now they do not have the means to renovate those houses. Unfortunately, with if they do not renovate them, they're going to relocate somewhere else. So we're trying to help them out as much as possible because changing the, the neighborhood's population will ultimately lead to a gentif- gentrification. Preserving the social fabric is important to us and we do not want the inhabitants to leave their neighborhood or to relocate somewhere else. My final question is how would you explain the importance of heritage to the public? Why is it important to safeguard these buildings? And how would you respond to those who argue that protecting heritage is actually a luxury or elitist concern among the other problems and crises that Lebanese people are currently facing? Heritage is part of our culture and identity. In Beirut, anyways, it is part of Beirut's identity. Unfortunately, before the blast, most of the Lebanese citizens did not appreciate our heritage. They preferred demolishing the building and having a tower replace it. But the impact of the blast has put a spotlight on those homes, which is, unfortunately, it is a good thing that we had to have a blast for it to be in the spotlight. And uh, people usually think that uh, a heritage home is an iconic villa with a luxurious garden and that has like very luxurious features, but it is also the small vernacular houses niched in alleyways at the end of Marim Khail, Jaitewe, or even the 1940s buildings that are composed of five levels and that are a bit more modern but still follow a central hall and has the sort of triple bay, etc. And no one used to look at those heritage homes, unfortunately, before the blast. But now everyone sees them and they are waiting patiently for their reconstruction. They are part of our urban fabric And if our heritage homes were to disappear, Beirut would have lost her identity. It's like if we go to to Dubai or other new cities that do not have any heritage or try to do to reconstruct new buildings that look like heritage. Protecting and living in our heritage, in a heritage home anyways, is not a luxury or elitist concern. Those houses have an added value to our culture and to the city's identity. But what most people don't know is that those houses were inherited and not bought. We also have seen cases where heritage homes owner could not even leave their house after the blast because they had nowhere to relocate to. And those houses, they were actually passed down to them from their grandfather or even great-great-grandfather that built the house. And they do not have the mean right now to renovate their homes. So most of them stayed in their homes without any windows, doors. We even have a case where the guy had lost the triple arches, so his house was completely open, and he just stayed there because he had nowhere to go other than his house. So people that think that it's a luxury to preserve and to live in a heritage home are actually not correct. And we know that... If those people are not able to renovate their home, they're unfortunately going to leave, like I mentioned earlier, and and they will be replaced by towers that are way more expensive, but that do not have an added value to our city compared to our heritage.
At stake in the issues that Yasmin brings up is the question of how crisis threatens and shatters a shared cultural identity and the collective experience of an urban landscape. In the midst of large-scale destruction, these issues take on added urgency as heritage preservation becomes more than just a way of clinging to the old, but rather a means of negotiating who we are as societies. Another issue I would add here is that heritage preservation efforts that are unfolding across the Middle East, in Syria, Haida, and now in Lebanon, are one way that crises in the region get read and are made legible to global audiences. The burden of these crises on historical buildings and cultural artifacts is one travesty through which these crises get framed and rendered urgent in international contexts. This issue brings us back to one of the questions that seems to animate Ahmad Mismar's work, and that is how images of conflict and violence are framed, consumed, and reproduced. The question of how we represent or bear witness to violence is a contentious issue that has been debated fiercely throughout the years and takes on added significance when we consider the development of new technologies with increasing documenting capacities. On one side of the spectrum, we have those who insist on the imprisoning capacities of images. These arguments align with Marxist philosopher Guy Debord's notion of the spectacle, in which he claims that images and representation have come to replace authentic experience and thus serve to suppress critical thought. We can perhaps see elements of this argument when we consider how images of suffering and devastation are often used and recirculated in voyeuristic and problematic ways. Relevant here are theorist Susan Sontag's reflections on photography, which she argues is a predatory and violating act. According to Sontag, there is a form of complicity embedded within the act of photography, because the act of taking a picture is essentially an act of non-interference, which means it is often encouraging whatever is happening to keep going on, even if that thing is another person's pain or misfortune. Of course, these are not the only ways to consider images and their relationships to violence. While these arguments rightfully express discomfort with how violence is often spectacularized and aestheticized for consumerist purposes, an idea that Mismad himself seems to grapple with, there are other considerations that challenge this mode of thought. Most notably, the rise of digital technologies have arguably democratized the processes of image production, thus adding a new range of meanings to how we conceive of this act. It is no longer possible for us to view images as completely separate from the realm of politics, as someone like de Boer would lead us to think. Elisa Adami, for example, reflects on the entanglement of action and image-making in the context of the Arab Spring, and how activists converted action into images only to convert them back into action again. Unlike the work of photojournalists, the authenticity of these forms of images derives in fact from their amateurish and poor quality, as the shaky and blurry nature of their footage suggests a direct proximity to the scene of action. If we think here of videos of the Beirut blast, for example, their affective and chilling potential stem from the ways they in fact missed the precise moment of devastation, as the bystanders recording the onset of this moment were thrown out of sight by the force of the impact, their cameras tumbling down with them. 
It is clear by now that when it comes to the mediation of violence in a crisis, there are a multitude of considerations to take into account. In descriptions of his own artistic practice, Ahmad Mismad has noted a fascination with translation as a methodological imperative that drives his work. Translation, as I understand it here, is a form of mediation, a mode of relation that involves processes of change, to use Ben Anderson's definition. As we continue to think through the implications of representing violence, how can the act of translation serve as a framework for understanding how we might engage stories and images of conflict? To answer these questions, I turn now to writer and translator Lina Munzir for insight into her own creative practices and what it means to do this work from the vantage point of extreme crisis. So Lina, thank you so much for joining us today. So I know that in addition to your translation work, you also write quite prolifically, um, mostly creative nonfiction pieces from what I know. And, um, and I know you've become somewhat of a main reference for documenting and relaying the emotional turmoil of everything we've been living through and experiencing in Lebanon this past year. Uh, and I, I remember quite well um, Maya Mikdashi once describing your writing as uh, as visceral, um, which is a description that that really resonated with me quite strongly because particularly because of how your writing always seems to so effectively capture what it feels like to be situated in in this particular historical political moment. So I wanted to start by asking whether you identify primarily as a writer uh, or a translator. And, and what you see the relationship between these two roles, or what is the relationship between these two roles? And also, if you could speak a little bit about what it means for you to be doing this work uh, during everything we're living through. So thank you, Zaina, for having me. Um, I identify primarily as a writer. Uh, translation is something I fell into in order to be able to make an income, because uh, you can't really make an income from writing. And so, or to supplement the income. And it, it's something that I fell into quite naturally, actually, because being a bilingual person, it just made a lot of sense to, to translate. And also, you know, because I get to work in the medium that I love the most, and I'm still working with language. And I've always been, you know, even as a writer, really fascinated by language itself and um, the forms that it can take. And this was just another way of kind of exploring that so it's something that I already write about or you know even in trying to understand crises or trying to understand what we're living through I'm very interested in the language that we use in order to describe it the other reason I think why translation felt so natural to me is because I've always thought of writing itself as an act of translation um, I'm definitely not the first person who has talked about this but for me, I experience it like, to use the word that you use, I experience it very viscerally as an act of translation. The things that I'm feeling or the things that I'm, um, you know, like I sit down, for example, to write and there's this, this like riotous feeling that I, that is going on. And I, I have the vague outlines of the things that I want to try and relay and try to get across. But it's it, it doesn't take on its final form for me until it's actually within kind of the structure of language and syntax. And it, suddenly I realized that uh, a thought or an idea or a feeling that I had before writing it down 
becomes transformed by writing it into something that I myself can see more clearly. And But at the same time, there are certain things that are lost from it, right? So it is very much an act of translation in that way, is that there's things that are gained and there's things that I can see more clearly and that I can understand more clearly. And yet at the same time, there's things that I feel, you know, there was all this wild feeling behind it. And then I see it kind of like hobbled into words sometimes. And I feel like there's moments where I feel like I wish I could be a dancer or a painter or like somehow the the verbal form as well, it sort of limits things in a particular way that that I find like both revealing and wonderful and just very constricting at times. And, um, you know, so there is very much a parallel between these two things. So as you know, I'm, I'm interested in, in thinking about translation as a general framework for how we might engage stories of suffering, displacement, crisis, and, and violence. Um, so, so as you know, a lot of my questions will really be about unpacking what the stakes of translation are and, and what sorts of negotiations, challenges, and processes it entails. And, and I think maybe you, I mean, you spoke to this a little in your first answer, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious about how we might, you know, explicitly define the act of translation. So I've heard it defined in a number of ways as an echo or reverberation of an original piece, right, or as the afterlife of a specific narrative. In one of your pieces, you've you've described it as a kind of transplantation, which I thought was really interesting and evocative. So could you maybe reflect a little on whether or not which definitions resonate particularly strongly for you and how you might define the act of translation yourself? Um, I honestly think it means different things to different translators. And I don't mean that to sound like sort of um, like to kind of give a, like a platitude as an answer. But another thing that I find really interesting is the same way that many different writers will talk about writing in different ways because of the things that they're attracted to or the things that they're interested in or, or that draw them to this um, art form. I think the same is true of translators. And it's always so interesting to me to hear translators talk about their work and talk about what, how, how they conceive of it. Um, like this idea of, uh, of an echo or a reverberation. I find that such a beautiful idea. It's, it's not the way that I perceive it or the way that I see it. I think n- not that I disagree with it at all. It's just not my first instinct to think of it that way, right? Because that's not necessarily what I'm looking for in the act of translation or what I get out of the act of translation. But I, I still find it incredibly valuable to hear how other people describe it because it adds to your understanding of the thing that you are thinking about and engaged in doing. So I described it as a transplantation because that is primarily how it's always felt like to me. And again, it goes back to this idea of writing as a form of translation. So I, you know, I have this feeling and I, I want to sort of take it and transplant it. And in order to be able to do that, I have to kind of give some sort of sense of the environment around it that like created and grew this feeling. But the idea of of transplantation is one that I come back to because I write in English. I'm very, very aware. And I think anybody who kind of comes from the the culture or that is not the dominant culture, right, which is you can define it in any number of ways, which is like Western or white or this or that. um, I think there's many ways, but for me, it's much more useful to think about it as the dominant culture because we're all implicated in it in various different ways and we can all participate in it in, in various different ways and 
So anybody who comes from, let's say, outside or feels themselves to be outside of the dominant culture, you're always very aware, again, of having to sort of translate your experiences and translate the entire context around them. So that's why transplantation for me is much more, not much more than anything else. It's, it's accurate to the way that I experience it and, and to what I'm trying to do, which is like sort of convey like an entire environment, if that makes any sense. No, right. Completely. So, I mean, going back, I guess, to the the kind of main framing question here, what what are the stakes of of translation, of this transplantation, when you are dealing with moments of of violence uh, and experiences of suffering, right? So how do those particular moments or issues complicate this act of translation? Um, And I'm asking this here um, because in in your piece, War in Translation, um, that was published, I believe, in, in 2016 in Literary Hub, and is, is actually one of my, my favorite pieces of yours, uh, and it's actually how I came to know your work. You describe your experiences translating for the Damascus Bureau, and in the piece, you, uh, you describe the process of witnessing uh, as too passive. I found this really intriguing. So why is it? Because it's something that I use this this term a lot, a lot, right? How do we bear witness to violence, right? So so what is it about uh, witnessing that is too passive? And how is translating more than just a bearing witness? So there's an Arabic expression of, uh, I don't know if you, we use it in English as well, where it's like you, you put your finger on the wound <laughs> and... For me, this is the heart. Like I, I've actually, like very honestly, I've been incredibly paralyzed. I think since the beginning of this year, I feel myself to be very much in crisis. Um, like myself as a person living through crisis, and I, I'm also experiencing crisis in terms of how do I deal with it? What am I doing? What is my role? And I don't mean what is my role in this sort of like grandiose way, because I think in the end, like my role as a writer is just to do try and do what I do best the same as everybody else should right like you sort of roll up your sleeves and get to work and because it's just better than doing nothing so we're living through this moment of sort of protracted crisis and and it really feels like everything is slowly coming apart you know um like as the currency devalues and uh the value that we ascribe to it kind of is changing every single day it really feels like it's a breakdown of a kind of language. You know, it's like the language that we use to speak about value or worth or what your time is worth or what this product is worth or whatever. And it's, it's this thing that permeates everything, every decision we make, everything we're living, all of that is like, you know, this language has completely lost its meaning. And it really feels like, you know, slowly everything is collapsing around it as well. And I honestly find myself at a loss because on the one hand, I feel, and this is something that I've been thinking about very much, is that I feel like I, I want to create a kind of chronicle of this because I, I think it's important. Like, what does it mean to be living through this time and, and through this, to be seeing this breakdown and, and kind of like looking at all of the sort of articulation points where when there's this kind of stress, like where does it break down first, right? And at the same time, I feel like I don't want to just write journalistic pieces that are like, well, this is what's happening and people are growing poorer and it's absolutely terrible and everyone is growing more desperate and which all of these things are true and all of these things are very important, right? So this question of like, I do feel that bearing witness is too passive, like just this sort of coming back and describing things as they are. I think 
the reason it feels passive is because of the relationship that exists between the writer and the reader. And what I mean by that is I feel very much that a lot of times readers feel like myself included, huh? I don't, I don't like as a reader reading about other parts of the world and things. It's like you read something, you wring your hands. You're like, I feel so terrible about this. This is so awful. And, you know, but at the same time, you feel like having read about it, you somehow did something, you know, or that you, you absorb this and you took this in and you yourself as a reader are bearing witness to whatever the writer is like, you're sort of, you know, they're allowing you to look over their shoulder and then that's it. Right. So I, I think the reason that translation feels less passive than that is because there's almost like an act of alchemy that's taking place, right? Like you are seeing the words, you're absorbing them. They go into you. They meld and mix with your experience and your understanding, and then they come back out in your own words. For me, that there's like an act of transformation that has taken place. Like it has changed you, right? To, to do that. It has changed you and you've changed also what you've seen. And so if I think about translation as a metaphor, and, and again, and, and ironically, I don't know necessarily how to translate this into a way of living. I mean, I have certain inklings and inclinations, but those are too long to get into right now. But I feel like if I think of translation as a metaphor for how we ought to be living is that the main thing you have to do is you have to listen and you have to listen very actively. And then you kind of retell and in the retelling, you add yourself to what, you know, to the thing that you are retelling. There's a kind of transformation of both things. And there's like a very active interaction that is taking place. And it allows all of these things that normally would not be coexisting together to coexist, whether it's the time within which this was written and the time within which it's being translated and the time within which it's being read, right? Those are three different like temporalities that suddenly overlap, you know, or if it's the, the, the fact that like, you know, like when I was uh, wrote about translating the Syrian women's work is like, it, it comes through then my own experience of war. So these things are being added to each other and, and it helps you see patterns. And for me, it's, it's, I think, again, this idea of being implicated in things is much more interesting. Like, how are we all implicated? And, and when you have to interact so actively with a thing, it really forces you to think about that much more than you would simply as sort of like reading something, thinking, oh, that's really terrible, but it has nothing to do with me in a way, and then moving on. You know, I think what you're describing is, is translation as a motive relation that forces us to go beyond engaging with violence as a kind of consumption, right? Because it's, it's, it's you know, compelling you to be, you know, affectively interpolated into whatever stories you're engaging. This is my last question, but I've, I've heard you speak about how during um, the October Revolution that, um, I guess, erupted um, in late 2019 um, here in Lebanon, uh, you were tweeting exclusively in Arabic and you were this decision came about because you were sort of conscious about the kinds of audiences you were interpolating into the conversation. Um, and this made me think, and I don't, I don't know if, you know, if this is just my own kind of weird thought patterns about 
you know, whether or not there are things that should not be translated or that at least resist translation. Um, and here again, maybe to make a forced connection, um, you know, whether or not some stories are, are too raw to be appropriated by representation in any form, right? And I'm thinking here, for example, and I don't know if you've heard about, if you heard about this, but the outrage that uh, ensued in regard to uh, Beirut 607, which was the, the series of 15 short films representing stories of victims um, and survivors of the August 4 uh, blast, Beirut blast. Um, and so a lot of the outrage stemmed from from this idea that the pain of the blast was was really too fresh for such creative engagements. So I know I, I know I'm connecting a lot of different issues here, but I guess what I'm, I'm curious to uh, to hear you speak about is this idea of untranslatability, right? Is there are there things that are untranslatable? Um, and again, here obviously I'm, I'm thinking specifically in the context um, of violence and suffering. I mean, I, the reason I find this such an interesting question is because like there's so many different avenues to explore, um, you know, and so many different possible answers. So I, I think definitely there are things that resist translation, right? That that push against it. And I, I think there's moments as well, you know, during the October Revolution, I think, I mean, maybe better to call it an uprising at this point, even though I was like insisting on the term revolution. But I think what was revolutionary about it, and I think, you know, it's something that has completely changed the way that I see the world in the sense that... Um, you realize like when kind of like all of the reference points suddenly and spontaneously break, right? And there's this moment where you realize that the, a kind of change that you didn't think was imaginable is possible. And I don't mean just like, oh, we never imagined ourselves outside the sectarian system. I mean that like your imagination is suddenly given permission to go in any wild, insane direction. And there's a kind of energy to that that is just unbelievable. So for me, I didn't care about speaking to the outside uh, as much as I cared about speaking to the inside and kind of like people plotting together and talking together inside the country about what do we want it to look like and, you know, what, what do we want it to become? And there was this really this moment or this feeling of being like completely outside the general structures that you don't even realize are structures, you don't even realize how much they limit your capacity to imagine a different world. And then suddenly here they are, and they're all gone. And so it's almost like you're in a brainstorming session with everybody and, and you're not and then there's somebody from the outside going like, Oh, how's it going in there? And you're, you absolutely you're like, right in the middle of that kind of explosive creative process. And that's, it's, you don't want to talk about it. You don't want to hobble it again into, you know, into sort of like, to, to have to take that distance to describe it. And and I think it's it's quite interesting that the, the moment of revolution and moments of crisis and violence are incredibly, like, there's a, there's a huge parallel between them, because there is this, this idea of like, the explosion and the, the, dissolution of all reference points, right? And suddenly anything is possible. This is what happened with the explosion, but just in suddenly it was like all of your worst nightmares that could come true as opposed to like all of your wildest dreams, right? Um, but it, it's this moment when reality itself sort of like shimmers away and, and you see kind of the void outside 
all of these structures. And in one, it's a void that makes you feel like it's like incredibly, it's a space with like potential. And the other one, it's this void of terror, right? It's like you're staring into the abyss, you know, and at this, so, so like that's, that's sort of like, yes, there are things that resist translation and it becomes very difficult, but to kind of go back to this idea of like the, the Beirut 607, which of course, you know, I heard about. And for me, the act of writing is an, it's a primarily self-conscious act, right? It, it is in the sense that is it is the act of a self that is conscious of wishing to be heard. And otherwise you wouldn't, there's, you wouldn't put your voice out there, right? Whether it's your writing in your diary or whatever, there's, there's like, you are taking this feeling outside of yourself. And so it presupposes an audience, whether that's what you consciously intend or not, it is an act that presupposes an audience. And so you can't think about it outside of, for me, especially like living in a consumer society and a consumer, I don't just mean like a consumers of products, but like consumers of ideas and of stories. Um, and like now suddenly everything is a freaking story and like storytelling like has gotten into like brand deals and whatnot. I think it, it's not so much that we're not allowed to talk about what happened, you know, on August 4th. But I think the fact that it happened so quickly that people started to want to make films about it, you can't but see that as like an absolutely cynical thing of wanting to grab an audience's attention while that audience was still kind of like freshly curious about what had happened. And even in, in good faith, right? Like if I want to describe it in good faith, it's like, okay, so let's say the filmmakers wanted to talk about it, right? But again, I think it requires distance to start to put things into a structure that does them service as opposed to does them a disservice. And people, you know, were rightfully outraged about that because it's like, hang on, we're still experiencing this. We're still going through this. We're still having nightmares about this. And this, the, the way that this is turned into like, rather than these individual sort of attempts to talk about it or to talk about what happened to them, like suddenly to structure, it's like we're making a film, a series of films and we're marketing them and we're, you know, there's something very cynical about that, I think. And th that's the problem. It's not so much that you're translating things simply for the outside and like that in itself is bad, but like, what is your intention behind it? What are you trying to do? And for what quote unquote consumer audience are you preparing this product and does it feel like a product and if it does then people are going to be really angry about that you know and those films are almost like parallel is all of these like horrible fashion items that people are now creating right it's I'm sure you've seen them or read about them like the girl who made a purse out of like the broken glass and somebody else who like created a ring and you know I mean these are clearly consumer products that are being sold and you're appending this story of tragedy to them in order to sell them better. That's what happens like when people feel that you are that you are taking something so raw and turning it into a product for somebody else's consumption. There's something incredibly ugly about that. What Lina and Yasmin each invite us to think about are the ways that crisis unravels us and necessitates a series of negotiations and readjustments 
that are loaded with their own sets of ethical considerations. I thank Omar Mismad and his compelling body of work for inspiring the issues that animated these conversations. I hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you for listening. Today's artist was Omar Mismar. Our guest journalist was Zaina Taraf. Remember to check out our platform on www.stage.tva21.org. The editor-in-chief of Stage is Francesca Thyssen-Bornemisa. Carlos Urroth is the director of Thyssen-Bornemisa Art Contemporary. Soledad Gutierrez is our content curator. John Aranguren is our curatorial assistant. Our producers are Soledad and myself, Igor Ramirez. Nina Speranda is our project manager. This episode was edited by Anna Esteve, and our theme music is by Carl Michael von Hauswolf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>